everyone. Amanda Grace here with you on this March 7th. It is Purim today. It actually started at sundown last night. Chag Purim Samiach to our Jewish brothers and sisters out there. That is happy Purim. We celebrate with you the great victory and divine reversal where the Jews were set for annihilation and God delivered them and utilized Esther and Mordecai to do it. Uh, and destroy their enemies. So praise the Lord for that. We celebrate with them. And we have today a very in-depth teaching on the book of Esther that very much relates to things we see going on now in the world. So the fact that we see these markers going on is a really good indication that March is going to be a very interesting month. So we're going to open up in prayer. I'm just fixing my tallit here and making sure my hair does not pull on it. And we'll, we'll, uh, we'll begin here. So hello to everybody who's jumping on from around the country and the world. Hello to our moderators and our Ark of Grace team. Thank you for helping us do what we do for the Lord. Grace is away because I tried to take her out and she wanted to go back in her cage with her friends. So Grace happens to be away. The budgies are very active during the day. Uh, just an FYI. Also, over the next few weeks, we're going to be changing offices because there's a big office downstairs that will allow all of the animals to come in while I'm broadcasting. Uh, and it will be better because we can move the budgies kind of over a bit and have Grace and Chet in back of me. So just know you're going to see the same background. It's just going to be closer. Uh, and we're reconfiguring things a little bit. So Let's open up in prayer, and then we will begin. Father God, in the precious name of your son, Jesus Christ, Yeshua HaMashiach, Lord, we come before you. We praise you. You are almighty God. You are high and lifted up far above every power, principality, and might. Father, we give you all the glory, honor, and praise. Do your name, humbling ourselves before you this day, asking that the pull of the flesh becomes less in our lives, so you, your will, and your power become more in our lives. We acknowledge you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to the earth, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He was the Passover lamb, the sacrifice for our sins. He died at Calvary, purchased us by the shedding of his blood rose again in three days, ascended victoriously back into heaven and took his rightful place at the right hand of the Father where he rules and reigns forevermore. Father, we invite your presence in the presence of the Holy Spirit, the Ruach HaKadosh, to fill this room, to fill this place, to lead and guide us in all wisdom, counsel, might, power, and the reverential fear of the Lord. Let the weight of your glory, Father God, fall and just move and saturate the atmosphere. By the power of the blood of Jesus Christ, by the spirit of the one true living God, may only the truth and power of almighty God with authority now come forth in Jesus name. Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, we rebuke every plot scheme, contract, assignment, and attempt of the enemy, every blueprint, attack, and strategy. We rebuke it in the name of Jesus Christ and command it be dismantled, destroyed, disabled, nullified, voided, and cast back to the dry places, pits, and areas which you have designated, Lord, to be bound there in the name of Jesus Christ and not return or have anything sent in its place. Father. Take all the glory for yourself. You are the potter. We are merely the clay. You are the author and finisher of our faith. You deserve all the glory, honor, and praise. In the precious name of your son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen and amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Okay. This is going to be a pretty in-depth teaching on the book of Esther. And we are going to put it up on the blog, Amanda Grace, the number four him.blogspot.com. Before we begin, I have to read a letter that an adorable nine-year-old little girl sent me. 
and I'm going to read it to you now. And this is what it says. Dear Amanda Grace, my name is Emma Lee. I won't say her last name. And I am nine years old and I am a prophetic child of the king. I really loved your service at my church, Church International. So she was there when I preached at Robin Bullock's church. Thank you for praying for me. I love animals, especially dogs. When I grow up, I want to be a veterinarian. Thank you for loving animals and taking them in. I would do the same thing if there was more animals in my neighborhood. Well, be careful what you ask for, Emma, because the Lord may send them. I am sending you money to feed the animals. I will do my best to help you out. Your BFF, Emily. P.S. I'm turning 10 November 26th. Happy early birthday to you, Emma. And she drew me this adorable picture. And she sent $3.50, and we're going to buy a very special treat for the animals with that. So thank you so much for that, Emma. I love it when little children write us because they're so precious and they're so honest, and I just am very amused by their letters, so I wanted to read it. Now, whoo, now we're going to get into this. Let me get up this teaching because we're going to the book of Esther. So if you have your Bibles with you, please turn to the book of Esther. So we can begin. And we're going to begin by talking about what is Purim. Purim is very important on the Jewish calendar. It's an appointed time. So we have to set aside time to talk about it. So this year, Purim began March 6th, 2023 at sundown, and it ends at sundown today, Tuesday, March 7th, 2023. Purim is the celebration of events that transpired in the book of Esther and the Jewish people being saved from complete annihilation. The Lord working behind the scenes and raising up Esther and her uncle Mordecai to be used as instruments by the Lord to help save the Jewish people. The book of Esther is just another example biblically of the Lord using flawed, broken people to be raised up to do mighty things for the kingdom of God. Haman is, go is the villain in, in this book and in this account. Haman is the villain and the one who wanted to completely wipe the Jews off the map. So this is just a little background before we get into it. Her, P-U-R, literally means in Hebrew to cast lots. And that is exactly what Haman did, is cast lots to see what day he would annihilate the Jews. Manipulating King Ahasuerus to do this through a royal sealed decrees. Now the line of Haman to understand why this even happened, why the door was open for this to happen, why this man had such a hatred for the Jewish people, we need to go back to 1 Samuel chapter 15 where King Saul in his disobedience defies a direct command and order from Almighty God. The Lord through the prophet Samuel told Saul that he was to destroy all the Amalekites, including their king, livestock, wipe out everything. The Lord had good reason for this, and we will see why in just a moment. Saul disobeys and not only keeps the best of the livestock alive, but spares King Agag's life, the king of the Amalekites. So before Samuel arrived, King Agag, who was captive, ended up raping a female servant who was bringing him a meal. And Haman was birthed through that line. So through that disobedience, the door was open and Haman came through the line of the Amalekites that was supposed to totally be wiped out. So when Samuel arrives and realizes what Saul has done, the severity and disobeying the Lord God, Samuel executes, uh, executes King Agag himself. I, I believe this was the day that the anointing departed from Saul. The kingdom was torn away from him, and the Lord had already chosen another David to take his place on the throne. Now, into the celebration of Purim. 
The entire book of Esther is read in temples across the country on this day. When Haman's name is mentioned, now I have sat through a service so I could tell you all of this is true because I, I think it was the year before, not last year, but the year before, was invited to go to a celebration of Purim at a temple in Poughkeepsie. And when Haman's name is mentioned, the entire congregation makes a ton of noise and boos him to blot out his name. There are Purim parties, people dress up in costumes. Uh, this is because the Lord's hand was hidden in the book of Esther, working undercover behind the scenes. Money and food are given to the less fortunate. Gifts are sent and exchanged as they did in the book of Esther when the Jews were saved from annihilation. The tradition started then of giving gifts on Purim and it has continued to this day. They also celebrate with a very large meal or feast to break their fast because they fast starting at sundown Monday night fast all through Tuesday till sundown. And that is when they break their fast. I actually started at 10 o'clock. I just broke my fast uh, uh, almost at two o'clock today. So I fasted uh, part of the day today because it was Purim. Interestingly enough, to get into this now, the letters, this is going to come into play in a, a little bit. The letters for tree and the letter for gallows. So the word for tree and gallows are the same in Hebrew. Now we're going to get into why that's so important. God's name is never mentioned in the book of Esther, not even once. It is the only book in the Bible where the name of the Lord is never mentioned. And we will get into why. The Holy Spirit is at work through the book of Esther, except they do not know it is him, the unseen, the Ruach Elohim. We know him as Ruach HaKadosh in the New Testament. He is Ruach Elohim, the spirit of the living God in the Old Testament. The book of Esther begins on page 777 of the Bible. Seven, seven, sevens. Uh, when you get into, I think it's after the fourth seven is the Jubilee. No, actually, they're saying 777 is the Jubilee is what I have written. Because every seven years is a Shemitah year. And then after seven sevens, you have the Jubilee. So every number seven is beloved in Hebrew. On the Jubilee, everything is restored the way it was. Israel was restored on the Jubilee. So what happens is in Esther chapter one, now we have a little bit of background on this. We can begin. So in Esther chapter one, we have King Ahasuerus, enormous kingdom, displays his wealth for 180 days, which is six months, and then held a seven day feast. So we have six months and then we have seven days. If you add that, you get the you get the number 13, six and seven. The 13th of Adar is going to become integral in the day the Jews were set for destruction. The seventh day of Adar happens to be when the lot was cast by Haman. Okay, so we're going to get into that in a little bit. Now at this time in history, so we, we see the Persians have come in. They have completely defeated and subdued the Babylonians. They've cleaned them out of the area. The Persian Empire then becomes the largest on earth. There were 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia, which is a massive kingdom. And King Ahasuerus, also known as King Xerxes, was king over the whole empire. If you add one plus two plus seven for 127, you get the number 10. This number is also going to become very important in this account. Now we have Esther. Little Esther, who is Hadassah, is her Jewish name. 
So we have little Hadassah. Her parents are killed or something happens to her parents. So she's an orphan. Her uncle Mordecai adopts her as his own and raises her as his own daughter. So she grows up to be an incredibly beautiful woman full of the wisdom of the Lord. The name Hadassah happens to be derived from the Hebrew word Hadass, which means a myrtle tree. Now, interestingly enough, the, the Talmud in Jewish culture has an explanation for this. You have the Talmud and you have the sages. And some of these explanations sometimes are very interesting, so I'm going to read them. The Talmud explains why Queen Esther was also called Hadassah. Why was she called Hadassah? Because the righteous are called myrtles. As it states in Zechariah 1.8, and he was standing among the myrtles, the righteous prophets Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The sages in the Midrash, which is also commentary, take a step further, and this is what they say. Just as a myrtle has a sweet smell and a bitter taste, so too Esther was good and listened. She was sweet to the righteous Mordecai and was adverse or bitter to the wicked Haman. So this is how they break down her name. So now in the meantime, we go back to Esther 1. The king, King Ahasuerus, brings the provinces together, all 127 of them, for parties to display his incredibly obnoxious amount of wealth throughout the kingdom. So the king uses this social medium of keeping people's minds beholden to him, of keeping their attention on him. So after much fun and drinking and and all of this stuff, the king decides he wants to bring Queen Vashti out to display her beauty before the people and put her on display as this beautiful queen and mother of Persia. However, his display of pomp and circumstance hits a snag when Vashti flat out refuses to come. We're going to read Esther chapter 1, verses 10 through 12, the New King James Version. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Bistha, Harbona, Biktha, Abaktha, Zethar, and Carcass, seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king, wearing her royal crown, in order to show her beauty to the people and the officials, for she was beautiful to behold. But Queen Vashti refuses to come at the king's command. She refused. Uh, And she was brought, uh, she refused to come at the king's command, brought by his eunuchs, Therefore, the king was furious and his anger burned within him. So here is the king. He's got over 127 provinces represented. Remember, you add that out, it equals the number 10. Provinces, now everyone, the the whole scene is a scene of humiliation because the queen defied him. A direct command of the king he had given, and she defied it. So now we have Queen Vashti's behavior to deal with, which was the beginning of third wave feminism in that time. She disobeyed. She dishonored the king. So King Ahasuerus is now infuriated because he looks like a fool in front of all the provinces and the heads and the people that are at this grand event. So he banishes Vashti from the palace and that area. He banishes her. He removes her as queen. So because of this huge scandal, because this is a scandal for that time, this is like the type of scandal that would be on the front of every kind of people magazine. And a headline that sort of reads, the royal family divided. Does this sound familiar? Does this sound familiar for this time? Because we're watching this play out. 
The position of queen is now open. This is no accident. God is working behind the scenes. Remember, his name is never mentioned once in the book of Esther. His name is hidden because he is working all things together for good for the Jewish people, his firstborn, to save them. Many rabbis believe that God's name is so hidden in the book of Esther because it's such a high revelation. Because there is a lot in the book of Esther, and I'm, I'm going to get as much as I can in on this teaching, but there is so much in this book. Even if Esther is incredibly intelligent and beautiful, it's, this still could never have happened without the hand of God, what's about to take place. God runs the world and he is in charge, is the moral of the story. Meaning the Lord does what he pleases and uses whom he pleases in order to work things together for the good of his people. Jeremiah 29, 11 through 13 states, For I know the plans and thoughts that I have for you, says the Lord, plans for peace and well-being and not for disaster to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call on me and you will come and pray to me and I will hear and I will listen to you. Then you will seek me and require me and find me when you search for me with all of your heart. And we will see this play out with Esther, Mordecai, and the Jewish people. We are told that Mordecai was a refugee before he cared for Esther. He was exiled from Jerusalem, brought to a foreign land against his will, just as Joseph was brought to Egypt against his will, and a new and unpleasant reality is placed upon him. The same with Daniel, was taken to Babylon against his will. Daniel also was plotted against by other servants of the king as well. Joseph was plotted against by his brothers. We will see Mordecai being plotted against by Haman. So there's a theme here. So Vashti, for her insubordination, back to her, we got off of her for a second, is legally removed as queen. And now the search begins for a suitable replacement. Esther chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. After these things, when the wrath of King Ahasuerus subsided, he remembered Vashti, what she had done, and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's servants who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all provinces of his kingdom, that they may gather all the beautiful young virgins to Shushan, the citadel, into the women's quarters, under the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch custodian of the women and let beauty preparations be given them then let the young women who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti so Esther happens to be now one of the women that are taken into the king's court when the wise men around the king suggested basically this is what they suggest this this was a ancient version of the modern day bachelor and they're going to do a province-wide search for all the young, beautiful virgins and whom he's like likes best. It's will you accept this final rose? Like this is what they're doing. They're just doing it in the way that was suitable for their culture. So Esther ends up being taken from Mordecai as one of the women. Now, they don't go to the king right away. So when they're taken into the harem under the, uh, the kind of oversight of Haggai, they don't go to the king right away. They endure a year's worth of beauty and cosmetic treatments. It was like a never-ending spa day for a year. Never-ending spa day for a year, including infusing perfume oils into their skin until they just had that smell oozing and coming out of their pores. 
So Esther receives the favor of Haggai, who's in charge of the women. And he ensures that Esther got the best area for living, that she received her beauty treatments first, because the favor of the Lord will compel people to help you. The favor of God was on Esther, and it was compelling people to help her in order to push her into the position she needed to be for what was about to happen. When it is time for Esther to go to the king, women were allowed to choose whatever clothes and jewels they wanted, and they got to keep what they chose, which is a wonderful breeding ground for greed. However, Esther not only had the favor of the Lord, but had been given great insight and wisdom by God for this time. Esther asked Haggai what the king would like. You see, Esther was more concerned about what would please the king than what would please her, which is a perfect example for us of how we should be when it comes to serving Almighty God. We should be more concerned with what the Lord wants than what we want. And that in turn causes the king to become favored towards us. Esther chapter two, verse 15. Now, when the turn came for Esther, the daughter of a bit. Now, this is the first time I think we hear her real father's name. The daughter of Abihel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his daughter to go into the king. She requested nothing but what Haggai, the king's eunuch, the custodian of the women advised. And Esther obtained favor in the sight of all who saw her, not just some who saw her, but all who saw her. Now we need to understand as this is happening, Mordecai is grieving. He's grieving because he knows once a woman is taken by the king and enters the harem, she is never seen again. This was Mordecai's only one and only child. And he gives her up. He lets her go to fulfill the call the Lord has on her life to position her to be used as an instrument, an instrument to help save the Jewish people. However, Mordecai thinks because Esther is in a Persian environment that she would lose her Jewishness. You see, he told her to change her name to Esther so they wouldn't realize she was Jewish. So that's when her name changed from Hadassah to Esther. It is in fact her Jewishness that the Lord will operate through to save an entire nation. It emphasizes the sacrifice on Mordecai's part, shadowing the sacrifice the Lord himself would make, giving up his one and only son to come to the earth and die on the cross for the sins of humanity to save us from the terrible fate that would have befell us. And it would have befallen us all. Just as the Jews were staring the terrible fate of annihilation in the face, so was humanity when the Lord made the hard decision to let Jesus go so we could all live. Now, this is a divine appointment, okay? So they, there are appointed times, there are divine appointments. Esther and the king are a divine appointment because the Lord already knows, first of all, what type of woman King Ahasuerus is going to be drawn to and favor. So this is an arranged meeting by God who is working behind the scenes. And the king ends up loving Esther more than any other woman. And she becomes queen. Now, keep in mind, the king still has no clue she's Jewish. She has not revealed that she's Jewish. So because Mordecai tells her to conceal this. 
So this orphaned girl taken in by her uncle, a Jew, is now queen of Persia. Another example of this is Joseph, a Jewish boy abandoned by his brothers because of the Lord's hand becomes as a Jew second in command over all of Egypt. So when the Lord's hand is involved, it does not matter the nation or the circumstance. If almighty God has ordained it, so it happens. So Esther is positioned now. Now Mordecai is on his way to being positioned as well. What ends up happening in chapter two, towards the end of chapter two, is there is a plot against the king by two of his eunuchs. Mordecai just happens to be positioned at the gate that these two were boldly planning this execution. So Mordecai hears this, or really it was murder. They were planning on murdering the king. So Mordecai hears the plot and reports it to Esther, who tells the king. And the plot is investigated and it is valid. So now this in turn is written in the book of memorable deeds, which will be pivotal and come into play later on. So this is the precursor to what Haman is about to execute and why the Lord has positioned both Esther and Mordecai. Haman's plot against the Jews starts in Esther chapter three. So Esther chapter three, verses one through two. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, remember King Agag, and advanced him and set his seat above all the princes who were with him and all the king's servants who were with him, who were within the king's gate, bowed and paid homage to Haman. For so the king had commanded concerning him, but Mordecai would not bow or pay homage. So here is the question. With Mordecai, why won't this man bow to Haman? Haman was elevated to second in command to the king. It appears there is this decree issued that all servants were to bow to Haman when he passes in the streets. However, Mordecai refuses to bow to Haman. There is a major clue in this because why does Mordecai do this? Why risk his life just to thumb his nose at Haman? It's bigger than that. Could it be that bowing down is idolatry and Mordecai is standing up for his faith in the commandment, do not worship other gods? Does the Torah consider it idolatry? The Torah is full of examples of humans bowing before another human. As an example, Abraham bowed, Obadiah bowed to Elijah. It's a way of showing respect in that time of history. And we, we don't hear anything. There are things that are written in the Jewish commentaries about something that was around Haman's neck that was an idol. And, and that is actually written in Jewish commentaries. However, the book of Esther does not state any of this in detail. So it doesn't talk anything about what Haman is wearing. Because really, it's not crucial to the story. So you see, Haman gave the decree because Haman really wants to be king. This is why the, he gave this order that all the servants have to bow to him because Haman really wants to be king. Haman was systematically and methodically planning to take the position of king from Ahasuerus and stage a coup. So Mordecai would not bow because Mordecai discerned this and his loyalty was to God first and King Ahasuerus second. Haman was not the king 
Therefore, Mordecai would not take part in this exercise. Mordecai saw right through what he was doing, and Haman knew it. This was the issue. Central to the book is a decree of genocide formed by Haman that Mordecai helped to stop. He was an instrument of Almighty God. The only reason Haman made the decree is because Mordecai refuses to bow to him because Mordecai knew it was a deception and a false decree, the decree of bowing to Haman. That is what compels Haman to go to Ahasuerus about annihilating all the Jewish people. So Mordecai's refusal to bow births a plot to annihilate the whole people. Haman knew this people. The Jewish people were standing in his way of the crown. They saw through him, and that was the problem. So the first clash now between these two men, Mordecai and Haman, we are seeing this unfold in Esther chapter 3. Servants of the king were to bow to Haman, those in the palace gates. So so of the court so when the courtiers ask Mordecai why he's not listening to this supposed valid decree, this was what happened. So in Esther chapter 3, verse 4, now it happened when they spoke to him daily and he would not listen to them, that they told it to Haman to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. For Mordecai had told them that he was a Jew. Maybe Mordecai's silence is an explanation because Mordecai remains silent. He does not listen to them. This appears one other time, this exact Hebrew phrase, and it happened day after day, he didn't hear. This is the phrase, and it appears somewhere else. The phrase appears in the Joseph story. He is faced with the greatest trial of his life. Joseph is approached by Potiphar's wife to seduce him. She badgers him day after day, and this is what it says. Then it happened as she spoke to Joseph day after day, and he did not listen to her. So Haman not listening, uh, Mordecai not listening, and Joseph not listening, that sentence is the same in Hebrew. So the Midrash, which is the ancient commentary in, in uh, Judaism, notice parallels between Mordecai and Joseph. The rabbis noticed the protagonists in these stories were related, as in blood-related. Joseph was the child of Rachel. Mordecai was from the tribe of Benjamin. Joseph is from the tribe of Benjamin. Their trial was the same and their reward was going to be the same. So it mirrors. Joseph and Mordecai mirror each other and they're also blood related. Both are given the signet ring of the most powerful rulers of their time. Now that's coming up with Mordecai. It hasn't happened yet. Joseph was given Pharaoh's signet ring, and Mordecai, as you will see, is given King Ahasuerus's signet ring, which is coming. Somehow, Mordecai's choice as to whether to bow to Haman was a latter-day choice of Joseph choosing not to be intimate with Potiphar's wife. In both cases, the men would not bow to the deceptions being placed before them and would not partake of the plan to usurp the authorities of their time. For Joseph, it was Potiphar. For Mordecai, it was King Ahasuerus. Potiphar's wife should be reserved for Potiphar. And by Mordecai resisting the demands of the courtiers and refusing to bow to Haman, was showing a deep loyalty that bowing should only be reserved for the king. 
So the king decrees this, that all should bow to Haman, but he tells one person, the king, and we're going to get into that. And Haman then took it and ran with it. So he issues this decree that all should bow to Haman. And at the same time, Mordecai is exhibiting loyalty to the king by defying the decree because Mordecai knows it's a false decree, a fabrication by Haman. And by Mordecai refusing to bow, he is exposing the deception of Haman. And Mordecai is also exposing that Haman wants all around him to begin to view him as being just like the king, because Haman wants to be the king. Kind of like Lucifer wants to be like God, but will never be. So it's, the, it's the same concept. Now, we're going to bring an interesting, uh, an, an, an interesting faction into this. So at the tree in Genesis, at the beginning of Genesis, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, when the serpent says to Eve, if you eat of it, meaning the fruit, your eyes will be opened and you will become like God, knowing good from evil. It's the same deception repackage. Haman wanted to be like the king. So he deceived the people to get to bow to him. The serpent deceived Adam and Eve. If you eat of this fruit, you will be like God. It's repackaged, the same deception repackaged. This is Haman's first not so subtle attempt to begin to turn public opinion in his favor. And Mordecai is standing in the way of this plan. So how did this decree that all should bow to Haman get legislated in the first place? So after Mordecai foils the assassination plot of the king by the two eunuchs, the king elevates Haman, which is a little strange because Mordecai is the one who exposed the plot. So Haman gets elevated and placed, uh, the king places him second in command to himself. Suddenly, at that point, the servants started bowing to Haman because so the king commanded him. The last verse there seems to be, the, the rabbis believe there is a misplaced pronoun. So who did the king command to bow to Haman? It never says. Who did he command to bow to Haman? So Esther 3, chapter 3, verse 2. And all the king's servants who were within the king's gate bowed and paid homage to Haman. For so the king had commanded concerning him. But Mordecai would not bow or pay homage. The text translates, for so the king commanded him. The king was talking to only one person. What is this text implying? That the only person the king could have commanded about this was Haman himself. Why was the decree issued to Haman and not sent out as a royal decree with the king's signet ring seal? How did the courtiers know about this decree? Haman would be the only source of information. Haman is going around telling the servants and the king, that the king said they are all to bow to him. And here, people, is one of your first examples of fake news in the Bible, right here. This is your, your ancient Persian example of fake news. Haman is told something, and then Haman goes and spreads it and twists it in a way it was never meant to be, to try to accomplish a very wicked agenda. So the king didn't give this order because there's no signet ring, there's no seal, there's no scroll, there's no decree. 
Notice it was Haman who gave the order, not the king. And so the king should have given that order if it were true. This shows Haman is taking liberties the king did not order or grant, and thus begins the abuse of power that is going to lead to him wanting to annihilate the Jews. Haman is engineering a power grab here with this bowing, with this everyone has to bow to him. He wants to be seen as the king. He wants to be seen as on par with the king. He wants the servants to begin to view him as the king. Idolatry started with the mistaken notion that you could bow to the servant to honor the master. And that is what Haman is doing exactly. This is likened for an example of those who began worshiping the sun as a way to worship God. And then they forgot all about God and just worship the sun. This is what's going on here. Esther chapter three, verse seven, in the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the, in the 12th year of King Ahasuerus, they cast Pur, this is the lot in Hebrew, before Haman to determine the day and the month until it fell on the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. So what Haman does is he goes to the king and he says, these people are different from everyone else. They don't obey you. They don't serve you. You know, they serve a different God. And, and, and Haman gives this very um, alluring pitch to the king to get rid of them. And he puts a price tag on it, which we'll get into in a moment. But interesting about the month of Nisan. So the month of Nisan is when the lot was cast to see what day the Jews would be destroyed. Pharaoh went to kill the Jews who left Egypt through the Red Sea on the 19th of Nisan. And it was the 19th of Nisan when Adolf Hitler was born. So the month of Nisan is a month through, through history that the enemy has attempted to use in order to raise up leaders and in order to provoke leaders to try to destroy the Jewish people, uh, the, the firstborn of Almighty God. So just an interesting fact there about Nisan, it all ties in. So because the Jews follow the Torah, there has to be a hint to Esther in the five books of Moses. Being Esther lived so long after these five books were written, but there should be some type of hint in there about this. So where is this hint of Esther, Haman, and Mordecai in the Torah? So if God has seen all of it, the beginning, the end, then the Torah would have hinted at this. Haman, the hint of Haman, according to the sages, comes from the story of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They find a word that is similar in spelling. So it, 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 it translates the word He-Mem-Nun, which sounds like Haman. And it appears in Genesis 3. It is a hint to the Hamemnon, to Haman in the Torah. The verse pointed to is after Adam has eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which is Genesis 3, chapter 11. God says, Haimin Hayetz, have you eaten from the tree I have commanded you not to eat from? Hamemnon. So when you think about this, Haman is an evil individual plotting genocide. And we don't think of Adam as such a bad guy. He eats from the tree. That's not such a good thing. But it's not like he's plotting genocide. So why this comparison, which seems a bit shocking, of Haman to Adam? So 
what are the, the, the Jewish wise men, what were they trying to say about this within, in the book of Esther? So here, here is, in a nutshell, what they were trying to say. Haman has everything, a powerful position with the king, riches, wealth, and the one thing he cannot have is Mordecai, killing Mordecai for refusing to bow. Mordecai is the forbidden fruit, the fruit Haman is not supposed to touch. Adam had everything in the garden, and the one thing he could not have was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Eve is the one who deceives Adam into eating from the tree. Likewise, Zeresh, Haman's wife, is the one who convinces him to hang Mordecai, the forbidden fruit, and kill him in Esther chapter 5, verse 14, encouraging him to build the gallows 50 cubits high. A cubit is measured from your elbow to the top of your hand, I believe. The tree and gallows are from the same word in Hebrew. So this really ties in back to the tree. Esther chapter 5, verse 14. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows be made 50 cubits high. And in the morning suggest to the king that Mordecai be hanged on it, then go merrily with the king to the banquet. Because remember, we're going to get into this, but Esther uh, is going to have to step up here in a moment to deal with what is about to happen. So... This all goes back to the tree. This is what this all goes back to. It all goes back to that moment of the tree. So they want to hang Mordecai on a 50 cubit gallows, a 50 cubit, 50, the number of the Jubilee, where the captives are set free and what is stolen is returned. Haman is the thief attempting to steal the crown of the king and kill and destroy the Jewish people. John 10, 10, the thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. The number 10, twice. 10 links this verse to what is going to be executed against the line of Haman. So this is no mistake. Haman is trying to steal the crown and kill and destroy the Jews. Esther chapter 6 is where we see things begin to take a massive turn, where we begin to see the reversal, this divine reversal take place as the Lord continues to work behind the scenes of his people. This was because Mordecai would not bow to Haman, not only wants to lay hands on Mordecai now, but annihilate the entire Jewish people for it. So we know in Esther chapter three, Haman casts the purr, the lots, and he gets the month of Adar, and it was the 13th of Adar, I believe, that the lot landed on. So Haman approaches the king with a very deceptive proposal. Haman presents the argument that the Jews do not follow the king's laws and that there is diversity in showing that one is better than the other, meaning the Jews are not unified. The Jews at this moment in the Persian Empire are divided. Diversity is the opposite of Purim. Truly, Purim is coming to include one another. That is why packages and gifts are sent to be closer to others and to draw closer to others. So Haman argues that the Jews' laws are different, meaning God's laws are different than their laws, and it is in the king's best interest to not let them remain in the provinces. And if the king does so, Haman would pay 330 tons, which is in the complete Jewish Bible, of silver into the king's treasury. 
So Haman is playing to the king's side of wanting riches, of displaying his wealth, of that fleshly carnal side. So in a way, Haman makes the king an offer he cannot refuse. So Haman now is using this humongous amount of silver, which would equal $161 million in today's market, to attempt to deceive and betray the king. The 330 tons of silver, there is a lot of revelation here that we're going to go into. So the 330 tons of silver represents the two betrayals of Jesus in the Gospels. The number three, before the rooster crowed, Peter would deny Jesus three times. He is told by Jesus this would happen before the events that led to Calvary take place in Matthew 26, 34. The number 30 was the number of pieces of silver Judas was offered to betray Jesus to the Pharisees and hand him over to them. Haman was attempting to destroy the king by getting him to betray the Jews and sign the Jews' death sentence, adding a huge amount of silver to lure the king in because Haman wanted to be the king. The betrayal of Jesus himself is foreshadowed within these scriptures. The decree goes out on the 13th day of the 12th month. The Jews are to be annihilated and destroyed. That's the 13th of Adar. The main reason for such a decree even going out, according to a Hasidic rabbi, why the Jews deserved it. So I happened to speak a couple of years ago to a Hasidic rabbi, and this was his take, why the Jews deserved this. Why did this even happen? He said, they went to the party of Ahasuerus. It was not kosher and it was it was a grave sin, but it's not the main reason. It was that they were so carried away with the society of this world. It took away what the Jews were. They got carried away with the party and forgetting the message of the creator of the world. So basically the Jews are making the same mistake that they made when they were brought to Egypt by Joseph. They are beginning to adopt and integrate the Persian idolatrous ways into their lives and they are forgetting God and his law in the process. They are mixing the world with God. So they are making that, this is cyclical. They're making the same mistake again. So Esther chapter four, this decree goes out. It goes out to all 127 provinces, which equals the number 10, which, which will pop up here. Mordecai tears his clothes when the decree goes out. He tears his clothes and he puts on sackcloth and ashes to mourn, to mourn what is about to happen here. So the Jews, not only Mordecai, but many of the Jews put on sackcloth and ashes. Esther now learns of Haman's plot and initially is seized with great fear because remember the king doesn't know she's Jewish still, which is what the enemy wants to strike fear. So then we lose faith. So when this all happened in our nation a few years ago, uh, with Corona and there was a gripping of fear. This is what's happening now. These decrees have gone out. Esther is gripped with fear. She is the queen and she's, she's got to get a hold of herself and fast here in order for this to be reversed. So she attempts to send Mordecai clothes. This is her answer. You know what? I need to get him out of these sackcloths and fast. This is her first fleshly response. But Mordecai refuses because he's in mourning. He's in mourning at the loss of Esther, the loss of his people, and that Esther will completely lose her Jewishness in this when this annihilation takes place. Finally, Esther sends 
Hathach, a eunuch, to find out from Mordecai why he is so destroyed, why he's in sackcloth. So Esther chapter 4, verses 5 through 17, I'm going to read uh, all 12 verses because this is this is the crux of it right here. So Esther summons Hatach, one of the king's officials attending her, and instructed him to go to Mordecai and find out what this was all about and why. This I'm reading this from the complete Jewish Bible. Hatach went out to Mordecai in the open space in front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him and exactly how much silver Haman had promised to put in the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the decree for their destruction issued in Shushan so that he could show it to Esther, explain it to her, and then instruct her to approach the king, intercede with him, and implore his favor on behalf of her people. Hatach returned and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Verse 10, then Esther spoke to Hatach and gave him this message from Mordecai. All the king's officials, as well as the people in the royal provinces, know that if anyone, man or woman, approaches the king in the inner courtyard without being summoned, there is just one law. He must be put to death unless the king holds out the gold scepter for him to remain alive. And I haven't been summoned to the king for the past 30 days. There is the number 30 again. 30, the number of pieces of silver that Judas uh, received to betray Jesus. 330 tons, the number of silver that Haman has tempted Ahasuerus with to destroy the Jewish people. Now she hasn't been summoned for 30 days. Verse 12, upon being told what Esther had said, Mordecai asked them to give Esther this answer. So this is Mordecai's answer to Esther. Don't suppose that merely because you happen to be in the royal palace, you will escape any more than the other Jews. For if you fail to speak up now, relief and deliverance will come to the Jews from a different direction. But you and your father's family will perish. Who knows whether you didn't come into your royal position precisely for such a time as this. The complete Jewish Bible translates it as precisely a precise window, a precise time, an appointed time. Verse 15, Esther had them return this answer to Mordecai. Go assemble all the Jews to be found in Shushan and have them fast for me, neither eating nor drinking for three days. How long was Jesus dead in the tomb before he resurrected? Three days. So night and day they did this. She says, also, I and the girls attending me will fast the same way. Then I will go into the king, which is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Then Mordecai went his way and did everything Esther had ordered him to do. This is crucial. This is where Esther gives herself over completely as an instrument to be used by Almighty God. She fully commits. Esther fasts three days, no food, no water, along with those around her, including Mordecai and the Jews. So now she's been fasting three days. She is weak. She is pale. She doesn't look her best. She puts on her royal robes anyway. She takes her life into her hands, and she goes and stands before the king in the inner court. However, Esther has the supernatural favor of God on her that has only gotten stronger with this three-day fast. So now she has fasted and prayed because this is the moment where she needs the Lord to go before her. She needs the favor of the king. 
Esther chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Now it happened on the third day that Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace across from the king's house, while the king sat on his royal throne in the royal house, facing the entrance of the house. So it was when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court that she found favor in his sight. And the king held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther went near and touched the top of the scepter. And the king said to her, what do you wish, Queen Esther? What is your request? I shall be give it to you up to half the kingdom. So Esther answered, if it pleases the king, let the king and Haman come today to the banquet that I have prepared for him. Then the king said, bring Haman quickly that he may do as Esther has said. So the king and Haman went to the banquet that Esther had prepared. This is a pivotal point, what has just happened, because had the king not extended the golden scepter, all would have been lost and the Jews may have been annihilated. It is hinged on Esther finding favor in the sight of the king. Remember, Esther and Mordecai are instruments of Almighty God right now. He is working through them. And it is after this banquet, the first banquet, the king cannot sleep. He, he gets a bout of insomnia, which we'll talk about. As Esther has invited them to a second banquet, and only then will she make her requests known. So after this first banquet, Haman leaves joyful, thinking he has everything in the bag. Thinking that everything has just been set up perfectly for him here to execute his plan. So that night after the first banquet, the king cannot sleep. Uh, he cannot sleep after what's transpired with Esther appearing suddenly in his court, the extending of the golden scepter. And of anything Esther could have asked the king for, because he offered up to half his kingdom, she invites the king and Haman to a banquet. This is the virtual living and walking out what we see happening of Psalm 23, verses 4 through 5. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. A table is being prepared before Esther, Mordecai, and the Jews in the presence of their enemies, an actual banquet table, the presence of her enemies, Haman's presence at the banquet. Chapter six now begins with King Ahasuerus fighting an intentional bout of insomnia, which is intentional on the Lord's part. It was out of the ordinary that he could not sleep. And it reflects that God, the King of Kings, does not sleep nor slumber. So when a person is up versus sleeping, see, when a person is awake, everything functions normal in a normal way. While they sleep, you're not in an alert state. God neither sleeps nor slumbers because he is protecting us. He is ever present. He is omniscient. Ahasuerus is a reference to God, which is interesting. The spelling, aharit, which means end, and resh, which means beginning. So this is his spelling, I believe, in Hebrew. Aharit means end and resh means beginning. So end, beginning. God is the end from the beginning and the beginning from the end. Ahasuerus can't sleep. The Lord cannot rest because he knows his people, the Jewish people, are in danger. His children are in danger. At the same time, Haman cannot sleep by God's design because the Lord knows what Haman is coming to ask the king for. So the king asks for the book of records and memorable deeds. He is compelled to ask for this, to be read to him because truly his spirit is being stirred by the Lord. 
Haman cannot sleep because he has just been convinced by Zeresh, his wife, a shadow of the tempting of Adam by Eve, to go to the king and ask for Mordecai's head. The serpent tells Eve and Adam, you will be like God if they eat from the tree and that they would not die. They would be like God. Likewise, Haman wants to be like the king and Mordecai is that forbidden fruit standing in his way that Zeresh tempts Haman to take a bite of. During the reading of these memorable deeds, this book, that the king has to be read. The king realizes Mordecai was never honored for uncovering the plot of the eunuchs against the king's life. That was early on in the book of Esther. It is at this pivotal moment that Haman enters to speak with the king about killing Mordecai. And the king poses a question to, he poses a question to Haman in chapter six. Before he knows Haman's request, he says, what is to be done for a man that the king desires to honor? So Haman thinks it's all about him because he's a narcissist. So he tells the king to honor such a man to give him a royal crown, a royal robe and a royal horse and put the person on the horse and walk him around announcing this is what shall be done for a man the king chooses to honor. Haman wants to be like the king. He wants to be the king, just as Adam and Eve wanted to be like God. Now the king begins to recognize the evil in Haman when Haman says this and the reverse happens and the king turns to Haman and says, go do this for Mordecai. Now at this moment, we see things drastically beginning to reverse on Haman. So Haman must now parade Mordecai through the streets, being forced to honor the very man he wants to destroy along with his people. Now, Haman returns home after this completely distraught and his wife, Zeresh, the very one who lured him to hang Mordecai to touch the forbidden fruit, makes a very prophetic statement. Esther chapter six, verse 13. When Haman told his wife, Zeresh, and all his friends, his wise men and his wife, Zeresh, said to him, if Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of Jewish descent, you will not prevail against him, but will surely fall before him. Once they make this statement, Haman is suddenly hurried to the second banquet that Esther requested. So he has no time to take down the gallows or attempt to correct what he has done. Haman makes the mistake that later on the officials that wanted to destroy Daniel would make as well. Through tricking King Darius into a decree, those officials would make the same mistake and a Purim-like situation unfolds there as well in the book of Daniel. So the second banquet starts, we're in chapter seven now of the book of Esther, and Queen Esther makes her plea and has to break the news to the king that she herself is a Jew. So Esther chapter seven, verses three through six then Queen Esther answered and said, if I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given me at my petition and my people at my request. For we have been sold, my people and I, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. Had we been sold as male and female slaves, I would have held my tongue, although the enemy could never compensate for the king's loss. So King Ahasuerus answered and said to Queen Esther, who is he and where is he who would dare presume in his heart to do such a thing? 
This reminds me of the of the showdown between Nathan and King David, where Nathan comes in and tells this story about this man taking this one man's lamb that he loves so much and and hurting it. And he said, who is he and where is he? Because that person should die. That That's what this reminds me of here. So and you turn around, it's like you're the one that made the decree king. It's you. You're the one that did this. It, it reminds me of that. And Esther said in verse six, the adversary and enemy is this wicked Haman. So Haman was terrified before the king and queen. So now the king gets up infuriated. And I think he's just as much infuriated at himself for allowing himself to be tricked in such a manner by Haman. And at this point, the king's servants decide they're going to speak up now and they're going to betray Haman and show their loyalty to the king and to Esther. And they point to the 50-foot gallows, which is no coincidence. 50 is the jubilee. The captives get set free. Things are rectified on that tree. The mistake in the garden was rectified on that 50-foot gallows. The 50-cubic gallows that was built for Mordecai and the king orders Haman instead to be hung on it. Here is the mistake. It is being corrected that we made in the garden, repairing what's wrong. The serpent is being now hung on the tree. Interestingly enough, the letters for tree and the letters for gallows are the same in Hebrew. So on Purim, things were made right. The serpent was hung on the tree. It's all about correcting the mistakes we have made in the world. God's name does not appear in Esther at all. The Lord's name is hiding. However, Esther also starts out hiding, hiding her actual identity that she was a Jew. If she conveys who she is to the king, she will go from hiding to reveal. Back in the garden, things did not go so well. Adam and Eve started out in the open and they ended up hiding from God after eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now the reverse in the book of Esther, the Lord will hide and we have to find him. Better yet, Esther comes out into the open. She reveals who she really is to her husband and that she is a Jew. She does this successfully. After she makes the argument, the king does not jump up and say, sure, I can save the Jews. That's not what he does. The law and decree in Persia cannot be reversed once the king sends it out. But the king gives the signet ring to Mordecai. So now here comes Mordecai's elevation, just as Joseph was elevated. This is the moment now that Mordecai is elevated. So the king takes off his signet ring, gives it to Mordecai and Esther, and basically says, do what is good. At that point, their fate rests with God, who has been hiding all along. Mordecai pulls off the almost impossible. He takes the king's ring and issues a counter decree for the Jews to defend themselves on that day, the 13th of Adar, which goes into the 14th of Adar. Mordecai is sowing a contradictory decree of the king, and the king favors it. Mordecai gets dressed in royal robes, goes out into the open and celebrates public relations. What does it really look like while Mordecai is doing this? He is attempting to make it look like the king is for the Jews. So he, he's putting this brilliant campaign forth in order to save the people that the Lord really gave to, to Mordecai to do. So after Esther has done her work now and comes out of hiding, the Lord comes out of hiding too. The 12th month, the month of Adar, on the 13th day, the Jews take up arms to defend themselves. 
Mordecai's role. Well, it's interesting because Mordecai has a role here. You've got these two competing views of the tree of the knowledge of Adam and Eve and Mordecai and Esther. Mordecai is the forbidden fruit and through the decrees creates something that becomes forbidden. Now it's forbidden to touch the Jews because they're allowed to defend themselves if you so touch them. The story of Purim is about making it right again and correcting those mistakes made in the garden. The mistake of eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that cost humanity so much was rectified when instead the serpent, Haman, was hung from the 50-foot gallows instead of Mordecai. This Purim is very prophetically significant. And that's where I am going to end uh, because... This was almost 19 pages worth of a teaching that, that I, uh, I put together. And I had started years ago putting this together. And then the Lord shows me more and more things. And I end up adding it to the teaching. And so we see a lot of this going on in our nation right now. We see a lot of the fact that they want to set the people of God for destruction and the Lord is not going to allow it. We see these Haman characters arise within the government and then fall. And so this Purim and, and, and March itself, I just believe, is going to be very pivotal in the way things turn. Uh, and I'm, I'm looking at Israel as well because Purim is an appointed time. And at the end of the book of Esther, remember I told you the number 10 was important, 127 provinces, 1 plus 2 plus 7 equals 10, and the number 10 keeps coming up. It was Haman's 10 sons that were then killed and hung on the gallows. And at Nuremberg in Nazi Germany, it was the 10 officers that were executed. And Purim repeated itself all over again. Uh, and so this is something that we see uh, a theme throughout history repeating itself. And so I would just, I would be encouraged this forum. I would, I would be encouraged that the fact that even though they attempt to set the people of this nation for destruction, there is a remnant here. There are Mordecai's here. There are Esther's here. There are Obadiah's. There are Deborah's. There are those that are willing to stand in the middle of wicked agendas and do the work of the Lord. And that is encouraging. So be encouraged and don't be surprised. If you see these super pivotal, sudden moments happen in this nation, happen in Canada, happen in Mexico, happen over in Israel, do not be surprised if you see this right now. Because really, Purim is a time where the Lord reverses the judgments meant for the people of God back on the wicked who decreed them. And that is the kind of time it is right now. And we see this happening. Be encouraged. The Lord did this for, for the Jewish people in Esther in, in our book, in the Holy Bible. He did it for them and he could do it again. And he has done it again. He has delivered the people of God over and over and over again. And the Lord wants us to occupy till his return. And we will keep watching that deliverance happen until his return. So I would say today, take courage, praise the Lord, celebrate with our Jewish brothers and sisters that he saved them from complete annihilation, that they are the firstborn, that we are adopted into the family, 
and that almighty God is on the throne, that he is always working. He neither sleeps nor slumbers and that we are getting ready and on the cusp of seeing an incredible move of God in this nation. The other night, me, Chris and Gus went and saw Jesus revolution. I have to say phenomenal movie. I haven't been to the movie theater in a very long time. Phenomenal movie. And it shows the same theme as in the book of Esther. The Lord takes broken people and raises them up and uses them to do great exploits for almighty God. And we are on the cusp of another Jesus revolution in this nation. We are on the cusp of an enormous spiritual revolution in this nation where the young are going to be crying out to Jesus Christ and almighty God. And they are not going to be able to blot out that name of Jesus. That name is going to saturate the media. It is beginning to saturate the movie theaters. That name is going to saturate because we are on the cusp of one of the largest revolutions spiritually that we have ever seen. I can feel the pressure mounting in the realm of the spirit. And we are on the cusp of it. Asbury, which which means a fortified place. That's what Asbury means was a catalyst. That's what it was. It was the catalyst for what we are now seeing bubble up in this nation. It truly is a revolution that is needed. There are times that revolutions are needed for different things. Right now, there is a Jesus revolution that is desperately needed in this nation. The prophetic timing of this movie coming out right before Purim is no accident. They had to plan this way before. And just the timing of it, is just incredible and it is right before porn this came out if we are watching this happen in real time in our nation we are watching this bubble up we are watching the pressure mount and there will be an enormous revolution that breaks out in this nation for the glory of god we are watching it happen so pray into it call on the lord for it there are pastors out there that are hungry for it and willing to go the distance for it and so we just need to pray for those pastors because they will be positioned to be used mightily people with prophetic voices that are seasoned are going to be used mightily during this time in order to stir up this revolution and stir up in the realm of the spirit uh, what we need to really saturate the atmosphere of this nation, because we need the power of God to saturate the atmosphere and the schools and the churches and the streets and the squares. And we are beginning to see that march start. And that march is going to become deafening. It's coming. So I'm just telling you, pray into that. All glory to God. Once again, happy Purim. I have to go pick Chris up for music and voice lessons. <laughs> and so I'm sorry that I have to run now, but um, I think I'm going to be back on tomorrow. And then we've got Grace Out Loud on Thursday with Marty Grisham. So God bless everyone. Keep the faith. Uh, we're going to play always what we play at the end and armor up according to Ephesians 6. Happy Purim to our Jewish brothers and sisters out there. Have a wonderful rest of your day. Hello everyone, this is Amanda Grace and I wanted to tell you, if you are interested in where you should invest financial matters, if precious metals, if gold and silver is something that you should invest in or should be a part of your portfolio, please go to bh-pm.com, that is bh-pm.com 
Beverly Hills Precious Metals, Andrew Sorcini, who has been on Art of Grace before. He loves to answer our viewers' questions, is more than happy to guide you and to answer your questions and to help you in those financial matters. So please go to bh-pm.com today. Thank you, everyone. God bless. You want to support an amazing patriot that's doing so much for our country and be a blessing, you can go to MyPillow.com and use promo code ARK, A-R-K, to save up to 66% or sometimes more off of all MyPillow products. They are so much more than just pillows. They have amazing bathrobes, they have sheets, they have slippers, they of course have pillows, and they even have dog beds. And I will tell you a fun fact, Noble Arcade at the Animal Sanctuary that many of you know and love has indeed slept on a MyPillow dog bed. So if you'd like to be a blessing, go to MyPillow.com and use promo code ARC. God bless everyone. If you are looking for an excellent doctor, if you are looking to get healthier, if you are looking for guidance, go to Sherwood.tv forward slash Amanda Grace. Dr. Mark Sherwood and his lovely wife, Dr. Michelle, have the Functional Medical Institute in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Both myself and my husband, Chris, and let me tell you, God bless Dr. Sherwood because Chris was a top nut to crack on this. But Chris is finally on board and we are both patients of his. I have to tell you, they have helped us tremendously. They also have an amazing line of products that are excellent for your health and can help you get your health back on track. So if you would like to make an appointment with them or you want to go see uh, what they are all about, what products they have, you can go to Sherwood.tv forward slash Amanda Grace. If you would like to grow your own food with what we see going on right now in the world with not only food supplies, but what they are doing to our food, you can go to amandagracegrows.com. These are amazing hydroponic growers. In fact, we have one in our parrot room, and this is an indoor one we have where you can grow food all year round, actually. Vegetables all year round. And we are doing that actually for our birds and our animals at our sanctuary. They also have outdoor ones. They actually yield 30% more and grow the vegetables three times faster. So if you would like to learn more, go to amandagracegrows.com. God bless. And I have to tell you something, they work. It is an alternative to big pharma based on quantum physics, over 40 scripture verses written into these patches for everything from blood sugar, anxiety, pain, neuropathy, immune system boost, dog pain. They are very sincere about um, having alternatives to big pharma. We are a big advocate of natural solutions to help with pain and, and, and blood sugar and a host of other issues. I yeah. tried the pain patches and yeah, I gave them I to my uh, VP of operations also, Ronnie. And she said they worked as well. She was yeah. quite shocked, actually, but she said they worked so, and they worked when I used them. When you connect it to your body, the skin patch changes your brainwaves. This one is neuropathy. I actually have it on and we use this on Toby, actually, because Toby's about eight years old. And from being paralyzed years ago and the Lord miraculously healing him, he has a little leftover with his joints and his hips. So we actually give him the doggy pain patches. What was he doing? He was running? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I walked him out and wow, he's boom. 
<laughs> and he got power. I said, no way. And I don't know. I said, Amanda, what? What did you do to him? To <laughs> so it's good. Hello, everyone. It's Amanda Grace. I'm coming to you today to talk to you about Reawaken America. I have been humbled and honored to be a part of Reawaken America since April 2021, when the first one was had at Rima Bible College in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And I have to say, I have watched so many amazing moments happen for the glory of God at Reawaken America. And seeds get planted in the lives of those that are still seeking the Lord. We have seen many people uh, get set free, healed, delivered. Uh, we love to pray over people at Reawaken America. Um, I have prayed with so many uh, amazing people, which include Marty Grisham from Lamar Prayer, Prayer, Pastor Todd Coconado, uh, who also deals in deliverance as well. And it has been uh, an honor and a privilege to pray for so many people, to be able to minister to them, for my husband Chris to be able to minister as well, and uh, for, for Clay and General Flynn to allow me to, to even speak there, to even speak and, and speak what the Lord has to say. People need the word of the Lord in this hour. That is what they need. Uh, and so reawaken america has been a chance for people to come and not only hear the word of the lord um, and hear biblical teaching and be prayed for but also to get necessary information they need because the word of god says it is the knowledge of the truth that will set you free um, and so it's been an incredible experience for us we hope to see you at upcoming events uh, that are coming up this year. Uh, and we are excited to see you there. God bless everyone.